I will say, I'm, I feel so at home here. And um, in part, um, it, this reminds me of the congregation that I served in, in Boston, um, which was a funky, non-traditional congregation. Um, it had been founded in 1920 um, by a group of folk that felt that essentially the church was irredeemable and that there needed to be a new way that people could meet with one another. Um, and they actually had this sense that one of the great problems was a class divide, and not in these kind of broad terms of this is the working class and this is the upper middle class and blah, 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 but in a religious community where there's a permanent building that some people control, there are always insiders and outsiders. And so this congregation did not have a permanent home for years and years and years. It always rented a public facility that any group of citizens could rent. And so it met in places from Jordan Hall at New England Conservatory to Symphony Hall. And Symphony Hall in Boston was um, in the great heyday, about which there's a bit of nostalgia in that congregation, but we'll, we'll allow that to be. But it was a place where uh, Clarence Russell Skinner said, the wisdom is not all up on stage. And so this was the first place that after the speaker was done talking, the audience spoke back, and they called it a religious meeting. (laughs) Um, And so I feel very much at home here. Um, I I can't tell you. Um, Thank you for the for the welcome. I'm speaking just for a few minutes this morning because I really want to hear from you. Here we are, it's the end of the summer. The tomato vines turning brown even as the tomatoes themselves continue to ripen. I have these uh, heirloom tomatoes that I grew from seed. They're about this big. (laughs) They're yellow with a stripe of orange with a stripe of green. Um, and they make the funniest colored tomato sauce, but it's delicious. <laughs> the zucchini in, erupting in its impossibly enormous fruit. The bell peppers in my garden, fully green and just beginning to turn a little red. I've totally conceded on areas where the weeds have taken over, and I'm already planning next year's planting choosing which parts of my little plot just don't get enough sun, and seeing where the water from the rain barrel that's permanently attached to the soaker hose underneath, how far the water actually gets before you get to the dry spot at the end where something better had to be planted. As I work on the garden, I remember my dad teaching me to plant tomatoes, and chiding me for not understanding how it is that peanuts fruit and thinning out Swiss chard and radishes and beets and paying attention so that each plant would have the room to grow. I'm not only thinking about my dad, but his dad, my grandpa, had a half-acre reserved for vegetables, potatoes and corn, tomatoes and pumpkin, whole beans and eggplant, but he also had a sliver on an acre reserved for flowers 
and he was meticulous. The beds of perennials and fruit trees gave order to an otherwise lawn of pretty close cropped grasses, and he framed the annuals with these combination of grass and tree and perennial bush. He would take care of it, he would water it and weed it, he would pinch it and he would feed it, and he made a space that seemed so peaceful, so full of immigrant pride. Summer was a time in our family for being out of doors. It was my father and my grandfather and all my uncles and their friends who turned a streamlet in the woods into a bit of a pond, a broad pond, rather shallow, just something to look at, and there to grow a series of pines that now are tall with flags, flagpoles for the Swedish flag and the Canadian flag and the American flag, the symbols of our fraternal organization. We grandchildren never knew the little landscape that our uncles and fathers and grandparents were emulating. But there was something that we learned about summer. Summer meant to go outside. Summer meant to spend some time at the Swedish park or at Aunt Blanche's little, little, little cottage by the little, little muddy lake. To be outside all day with a dozen cousins exploring places in the neighborhood, riding bikes to the amusement park down by the sea, pitching tents in the backyard and not sleeping indoors for weeks unless there was perhaps a hurricane. We'd have a week of scout camp and come back with crafts and badges and stories and a sense of freedom and a sense that the world was wide open before us, filled with possibility. Summer, for me, can't help but be a time when I want to go back to that time. It's filled with nostalgia for all that was then. But it's also filled with some feelings about what was not. Not a time for me of being able to be true about who I was, about who I am. Not able to be true about the things I might want to say to one friend or another. When I hear a nostalgic love song about the man that got away, I feel in my heart a lost presence of a handful of boys to whom I could never dare tell my true feelings for them, could never ask questions about them, and could never risk their answers. Hearing of such a song and being in such a nostalgic place takes me to that dangerous place of feelings that is the place of sadness and pain and loss. In her novel, The Giver, Lois Lowry creates a world without dangerous feelings. Instead, the community lives without memories, no recollections of being sad or scared, elated or embarrassed. The community has come to a place of bland contentment that they call the sameness. 
same stuff, different day, might describe their collective experience. All the experience of pain, loss, grief, instead is held by the receiver of memory. All joy and excitement born of one who is aged, excuse me, all joy and excitement is then born by one who is prematurely aged by the weight of all that he receives, all the community's memories, the sorrows known in war, and the joy in discovering fresh fallen snow, the heat of the survival in the jungle, and the warmth of family on holidays. None of the feelings, none of the memories exist for the community, all held by the receiver of memory who will one day become the giver, who will one day transmit it all into the mind of the next receiver. The giver can then rejoin the sameness, the surety, the confidence that good decisions can and will be made absent the terrible influence of memory, the terrible incidence of nostalgia. Those of us in the theater world know that European playwrights and directors after the First World War were critical of the culture that had led to war and asserted that in part it was the nostalgic nature of the culture, of the way emotion was communicated in culture that was insufficiently analyzed by the perceiver. Viktor Shakalovsky of the Russian formalist school and Bertolt Brecht of his epic theater imagined that a more useful approach to theater culture was to bring consciousness to the creative process and product by continuing to remind the viewer that what was happening on the stage was not simply the real stuff of a real life, but rather it was artistic invention by distancing oneself from the lives portrayed and the unexamined emotions expressed and not identifying with those emotions communicated, whether it was in a painting or in a sculpture, in poetry or in a theater piece, these thinkers thought we might begin to address the ethical and moral and spiritual content of a work of art. It was after a series of performances by the Beijing Opera that Brecht wrote that the actors were playing in such a way that the audience was hindered from simply identifying themselves with the characters of the play. Acceptance or rejection of their actions and utterances were meant to take place on a conscious plane instead of, as hitherto, in the audience's subconscious. They were asking this question, but is it possible for a work of art and maybe even a reminiscent life to not contain the subconscious assumptions both of audience and of the broader culture of the creators? Is it possible for a work created in the ancient time of slavery, for example, not to carry within it the assumptions of the slaveholders? Is it possible 
for a work of feudalism, not to contain the assumptions of, of the landed over the aspirations of the landless. What can we do with all the great classic works of art of other times, works that sweep us away with perhaps unexamined, breathtaking emotion? Well, I don't know. Perhaps there really is no value to those classics. Perhaps we should just throw them all away. This has been proposed by modernists. It's been achieved throughout human history with the eradication of religious icons by iconoclastic marauders, the desecration of all kinds of sacred sites by overwhelming armies, the destruction of ancient statues of the Buddha hewn into the face of a mountain by Islamic fanatics. Maybe they're right. There's no real great work of art, nothing pure, nothing useful. Let's just get rid of them. Or we can regard them as somehow perfect. Maybe those classics are classics for a reason, maybe a reason beyond reason. Maybe we should build them, see them for what they project, accept what they have to say, and in so seeing, find out that there's perfection there and there's imperfection here. And maybe by emulating that perfection, maybe I can be changed. Maybe what I'm supposed to do with that work of art is to live up to its standards. That's one of the ways of approaching it. But maybe you and I can recreate great art in our time in ways that unpack the assumptions not only of what the day was when those people created that work but the assumptions that are brought up in us. Maybe we can use our confrontation with the classics, the confrontation with the perfect as a way to moderate not it but us. And maybe it can help us examine who we are with one another, how we can be in the world. Maybe we can inject our critique of ourselves into our performance of great works and use them to dismantle our own culture and take apart our own assumptions. I remember the shock I felt when working on a production of, no, not Shakespeare, but The Sound of Music. An audience favorite, because the good guys are so idealistic and so innocent, and the bad guys so sinister. Wheelock Family Theater had been created by two lesbians and a gay man as a way to declare that all kinds of families have family values. Thank you. And it performed traditional shows, but with mixed race casts of adults and children, professionals and amateurs, side by side. Now to have a black Maria and a Jewish Captain Von Trapp that had Latino and Asian children was not so unexpected with this company. We'd seen it all before. But when the lead Nazis came on stage before gigantic red flags and huge swastikas, and the lead Nazis were all people with disabilities and people of color, 
There was no way to be swept along simply by the story and the music. No way to be swept along into the goodbye, good guy, bad guy thing. Each word, each act had to be inter- interrogated by the viewer. Excuse me. Powerful and moving and encouraging me in my own work of being a white race traitor and of joining the ethical and moral struggle to be a better ally to people of color. Our intellectual relative and occasional co-religionist David Henry Thoreau spent a week, spent a couple of years, boy, these glasses are working today, (laughs) of his life living in a cabin he himself built in the wood near Walden Pond, the kind of place that I might travel in my nostalgic summers. I went to the woods, he wrote, because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear. Nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deeply, and suck out the marrow of life to live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put to rout all that was not life, to cut a broad swath and shave close, to drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. And if it proved to be mean, why then to get the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world? Or if it were sublime, to know it by experience and be able to give a true account of it in my next excursion. We need to be conscious. We need to understand the lives we live and the real world we live in. There are interconnections among us that are deeper and broader and more numerous than we ever can understand. But they are not nostalgic and abstract connections. It's a small world after all. Not silly spiritual affirmations about being one people, occupying one planet, breathing one spirit of life. Things, by the way, which you will hear me say from time to time. We live lives deliberately, examining ourselves and our assumptions, sucking the marrow of life to understand it and each other. And then we are called to act, knowing that our lives matter, our choices matter, our relationships matter. And what we discover we are called to publish in personal witness and compassionate deed, in powerful organizing for our own sake and for the sake of the greater good, and with the humility that lets us know the power of the other, the leadership of the other, the companionship that we might share in this brief time any of us spends on this precious orb. When Lois Lowry won the Newbery Medal in 1994, in her acceptance speech, she said, the man I named the giver passed along to the boy knowledge, histories, memories, color, pain, 
laughter, love, and truth. Every time you place a book in the hands of a child, you do the same thing. That was Lois Lowry. This is me. May our lives be like books that we place into the hands of each other, that together we may share memories and pain and music and joy. And may we reveal to each other and to the world a love that is working among us, which will bring us and all things into harmony. Thank you. Blessed be.